Hi Jewsers and welcome to Jew South by Southeast. This episode's a bit special, obviously, because we have the fantastic Paul Gross joining us, but also because it's a mashup show. So what I've done is I've taken the interview which I did with Paul, and uh, this is surrounded by the radio show which I do. So I used the interview with Paul as part of my radio show, played some Canadian-themed music, and in this presentation that you're going to enjoy, you've got the beginning and end of my radio show around the interview, as well as a few snippets from the music we played, which have to be cut down for rights reasons. But please enjoy this uh, special crossover of the Dr. Squeeze Show, which you can catch every Thursday from 8 till 10 British time on the Live. Please do check out your own time zones for that. And due south by southeast, featuring Mr. Paul Gross. Thank you kindly. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Headphones up. Here we go. My name is Mike Fenton Stevens. You're listening to the Dr. Squeed Show on the Bear. Now put your clothes back on. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. This week we've got a kind kind of a crossover event happening on the Dr. Squee Show. So as well as hosting this fabulous radio show only on the Bear, well, also available in podcast form and we've got a YouTube page now where Dr. Squee, or the Dr. Squee Show, if you look it up there. But as well as doing that, I also host a podcast called Due South by Southeast, which gives Due South its Jews one episode at a time. So for anyone who doesn't know, Due South was a fantastic uh, TV show back in the 90s. And we celebrate it every week by watching an episode and and drinking some rum, because, you know, we like rum, and then we drink some more rum, and then there's a little bit more rum. And that's me, Nicola, and our friend Michelle. And this week, I was lucky enough to sit down and interview Paul Gross, the man, the myth, the Mountie, the guy who was Benton Fraser, the main character in Due South. And we had a wonderful time, and I'm going to be bringing you that interview this week. So it was an hour and a half we spoke for. So instead of having the big question of the week in the second interview, it's just going to be concentrating on that interview. And I brought the whole show from Due South by Southeast. So we got the opening credit music from Due South by Southeast, as well as the closing. You got the whole show in there. And I've got to say, man, look, I do not get get shy or get kind of like nervous easily when I'm doing an interview these days because I've been doing them for a number of years. But wow, did I get nervous uh, because like not just because I was so looking forward to interviewing him and he's someone who I've loved for a long time uh, as an actor and a musician as well. He does loads of stuff. But also because there were so many people who were watching from the Jew South fandom. Like, you know, you wouldn't believe it how uh, wide and uh, worldwide the Jew South fandom is. Uh, Jews, as, as they call themselves. And, you know, just, just having so many questions coming at me to ask Paul was, uh, you know, it's quite humbling, I've got to say. And uh, he was just so lovely. We're going to get into that in a bit anyway. So what I thought I'd do, as opposed to kind of like letting the big question of the week sucking up the additional half hour we've got of uh, radio time here, I thought we'd play... 
some Kanda-themed tunes in celebration, as well as some from Due South and uh, some by Paul Gross himself. So let's kick that off now. And I will say, if we've got any of our Due South friends listening, just to let you know, uh, we do play some adult tunes sometimes. Like there's there's one very wholesome one coming up just now, and then there's one which has got a few kind of moody words in it. So just just pre be warned if you've got your family nearby. Maybe if you're in an earlier time zone, we're here at eight o'clock here in the UK. But the bear very kindly let me swear because you know I was gonna, so they may as well let me. So anyway, let's kick things off now with uh, one of my favorite bands, the Bare Naked Ladies, and this is Canada Dry. We were shining like Aurora Borealis, like Sid sipping from the Stanley Chalice. Hi, I'm Dr. Squee, and you're listening to The Bear. Rawr. That is Oh Canada by Classified. Oh man, how banging is that tune? Come on. So we continue our salute to Canada in just a moment and we're going to be playing that interview with Paul Gross from our sister show, Due South by Southeast. You can check that out on your favourite podcatcher where you can catch a weekly, well I say weekly, when we get around to recording episodes, Devotion to Due South. We've got about kind of uh, coming on 60 episodes up there. So you can listen to us talking about Due South while having a few drinks. And we hope you watch along too. You watch the episodes, you have a drink and uh, listen to us. So there's all that to find out on your favourite podcatcher. You can also check out the Dr. Squeeze Show, obviously, on your favourite podcatcher. And you can find videos from both Due South by Southeast and the Dr. Squeeze Show on our brand new Facebook page, The Dr. Squeeze Show. Uh, sorry, Facebook page? I mean YouTube. YouTube. Like, you can watch all the videos there. That's what I'm trying to say. So, uh, that's how you can find us out there. But uh, back to this week's show. I spoke to Paul Gross, and uh, man, that guy just... Um, I won't say he doesn't age, but he just looks better with age. He just kind of continues to look uh, ever handsome. And what a lovely guy. He was so giving of his time. We were originally due to speak for an hour. He gave us an hour and a half. And it was really uh, just just a delight to speak to. We covered everything due south and stuff from around his career. Like some of you may not know who aren't familiar that he's worked with the likes of Leslie Nielsen. Due south broke the career of Mark Ruffalo, the the Hulk himself, uh, Carrie Ann Moss. Uh, there were just so many kind of wonderful guest stars, and we spoke about all of it. We speak about his music, uh, and it was just a wonderful time. I think you're going to enjoy it. But before we go into the interview. I'm going to play for you uh, one of Paul's songs from Due South. This is going to be him singing the Robert McKenzie, which is one of the uh, yeah one of the most famous tracks from the the show. And then you're going to hear the Due South by Southeast theme tune, and that's by Mr. Matt Lees, our friend who also does the theme tune to the Doctor Squee show. He's he's my theme tune guy. What can I say? So uh, we're going to go into all that now, and uh, we really hope you enjoyed this week's interview. It was a special one for me, and I hope it is for you too. And then, after the interview, we're going to continue with a bit more candle-loving music. Here you go. Here is Paul Gross, Robert McKenzie. You're listening to The Bear.
So what's your story? You work in a circus? Uh, no, ma'am. Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I first came to Chicago on the trail of the killers of my father, and for reasons that don't need exploring at this juncture, I've remained attached as liaison with the Canadian consulate. Don't take anything. Understood. Hey guys, it's Julie Lieber here. This is Calvin Harris, and you're listening to my station. I look like all you need. Playing the best music and podcasts. The Bear. I am Catherine Bruyer. Hey everyone, this is Ramona Milano, otherwise known as Francesca Vecchio. This is Paul Haggis. This is Paul Gross, and you're listening to Do South by Southeast. Thank you kindly. Podcast would carry me away. But while talking to Squeaky and Michelle get a word in edgeways, Rick over a bottle of rum on a dock of Southampton Bay. Hey, do South, that is what we're talking about. Do South, saddle up my microphone, get deep in Baker Bone. Hello and welcome to a rather special edition of Due South by Southeast. This week I am not joined by Michelle and Nicola who are, uh, well Michelle is actually off being one of our fine NHS nurses today which we salute of course. And uh, Michelle is, uh, sorry, Nicola is just watching from the other room. Instead, I'm joined by a rather special guest. He's the man without whom we would not be uh, watching Due South right now and we wouldn't be enjoying it in the form it is. You remember him, might, might remember him from such TV shows as uh, The Witches of Eastwick. You might remember him from such films as Passchendaele and from, uh, from, of course, Men with Brooms, along with many other. You might even remember him from a little TV show called Due South. Please welcome to Due South by South East, Mr. Paul Gross. Hello, Paul. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. You were just saying it's a, it's a bit cold but beautiful over there in Canada today. Yeah, it is. It's really It's been quite cold, actually. It's about 20 below right now, and there's a lot of snow where I am, south side of Toronto. It's, it's gorgeous. Snowshoes, skis, it's perfect. See, the, the only thing we Brits have is to complain about the weather, and, and I've got nothing for that. Like, it's just below zero here. I feel like a horse now. <laughs> I know, but you're really, you're very soft. It's a soft country. <laughs> <laughs> we have our moments. Sir. We have our moments. <laughs> so I, I was reminded today by, by uh, one of our fans that uh, it's actually six years ago today you got the Order of Canada. Really? Were you aware that it was the anniversary today? I wasn't. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, what was that Thank moment you. like? I, it's, it's actually quite amazing. I mean, the, the first, at, at first, I was, I think I was in New York, our place in New York and I got a call and I, it was some, some, it was kind of a scratchy line and it was somebody from the government and I 
maybe asking me to do, I don't know what it was to be on a jury, an arts jury or something. And, and I actually said, I really, I don't have time for this. Sorry. I'm just kind of preoccupied at the moment. And then I hung up and then the person called again and said, no, please listen to me. I think you do have time for this. This is what we're planning. It was the order of Canada. Oh, Oh, and I think she said, and would you accept that? Oh, I absolutely would. I think I said, <laughs> but at first I didn't have, it all seemed kind of vaguely theoretical or something until the actual ceremony. And then I was just aware of how extraordinary it was that I was included in a group of people who were vastly more accomplished than I am in much more complicated fields, like decoding the genome of the human heart, for instance. And that's not people I ordinarily have a conversation with. And I did feel quite, I thought, like the sort of, the interloper who kind of snuck in the back door. I mean, what am I doing here? These people have all actually done something. <laughs> so it was very humbling. And it was also really, I mean, it's, it is quite an, it's sort of an extraordinary thing. I imagine the same as being, you know, the feeling of being knighted in England. It's, it is quite a weird uh, fraternity you suddenly enter. Not that it makes any difference to my day-to-day -day life, but it is really a wonderful thing to be recognized by in that way, you know, I mean, it's quite. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine it. any of the many awards you've won at this stage must be fantastic. But when it's your country, that's something kind of just bigger and a bit different, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really it is in in a way that I hadn't anticipated. It felt quite meaningful. Uh, I mean, very meaningful, profoundly, and 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 I don't know. I, I kind of use that word humbling, but it is quite. It's because you don't really think about yourself in those terms. You know, you don't think. Yeah. So much about whether you're having impact on people or not, or, or making some kind of a difference. Or, uh, so to have that recognized, it forces you to kind of look at yourself a little bit. And go, oh, that that really was something. Because I'm kind of always forward moving. It's not really. I don't spend an awful lot of time thinking about what I have done. It's sort of what I'm. What am I doing now? What will I contemplate doing the next in the next phase of things? So it's a, yeah, it was really, as you say, I, I have received a number of awards, but that one was most extraordinary. Yeah, that's that's spectacular. Uh, so we have got just very quickly, I don't usually do this, but given that there's uh, so many people who are joining us today, we've got a few who've got sort of special occasions who are, are uh, kind of people I think kind of worthy of giving a shout out. First of all, I did want to give a shout out to uh, Michelle Sewell, if you wouldn't mind joining me and just saying uh, Big hello to, she would usually be with us today. She's working as NHS nurse right now. Oh, no. Uh, right on the oh, Um She's she's helped out with COVID, uh, you know, with some of the COVID treatments as well as working uh, in the hospital in general. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind just, just giving a quick shout out to Michelle. Michelle, you are heroic. And I wish you were here, but you're doing the important stuff. Thank you. And equally, someone who is joining us uh, right now, I believe, is uh, Ines Stepat, who is a firefighter who's 51 today. And uh, yes, she wants just a quick shout out from you, if you wouldn't mind. Yes, it's great, great to Apparently you've imagine met. you're here. <laughs> and I'm, again, <laughs> everyone in the front line, you're really something else. This has been a long, hard haul for everybody, and we're not out of it yet. And we need the people like you the most, and so thank you. Big shout out to anyone whose birthday anniversary, whatever it is today, who uh, has asked for a shout out. Unfortunately, we can't get to you at all. Uh, so, like, we've got questions from uh, all over the globe today, so I'll get straight to it. I want to, though, focus back on when you were starting as an actor personally. Where did it all begin for you? You know, I'm not 
a hundred percent sure really uh, I, I I it's just something I think that I always kind of liked doing I was a bit of a show off as a kid as my mother would say and uh, or used to say um, and I, I had a great drama teacher when I was in high school and in Washington DC and he was uh, just a wonderful guy and I thought this is a great this just feels like a great place to be doing this sort of thing. And then it also coincided, I suppose, a little bit before that. My mother had taken me to Stratford, Ontario, and it has a big uh, theater festival. And I saw William Hutt in King Lear. And I don't remember anything much about the production, because I think it was like 11 or 12 or something. Um, but I do remember thinking, ooh, I'd, I'd like to be part of that world in some capacity. So I think it kind of started pretty early, but then it was compounded by the fact that I just didn't really like mathematics. So I never, I kept figuring out a way to do it because we moved around a lot. So I could convince the new school board that math was not required of me in the previous school board. And so I managed to pretty much stop math at about the end of grade eight. And then, and then you're, then you're suddenly useless for the sciences. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> anything without and i stopped like in those days that was around about long division i mean i never i didn't i still don't even know what algebra is if somebody says the word i think oh yes it's something to do with science but i have no idea what algebra consists of so i was really limped, kind of forced into the arts and i have no particular visual capacity so it seemed like i had to go into the acting so i was kind of process of elimination i'm very impressed you managed to convince teachers another school just didn't do maths and you managed to do that several times. Well, this is pre-internet, so they couldn't really look it up, you know. And they were kind of late, <laughs> so they didn't bother to call. So you could say, no, it really just was not required of me. Although I can't imagine why that was persuasive, because you'd think mathematics is fairly standard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I, this just proves to me that you could sell anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That was a good one, though. I regret it, though, to be honest. Yeah, I wish I had. Because I did develop quite an interest in physics. The more the sort of abstract side of it is I got older and I they would go into certain amount of mathematic conversation. It absolutely means nothing to me. So I would go listen to Stephen Hawking. Honestly, I have not one clue what he's talking about, unless it's sort of in a more poetic form. I, I think that's most of us do didn't know what Stephen Hawkins was talking about. I think it'll be years in the future we'll be still working it out. Yeah, we'll still be going, what was he saying? <laughs> it's very impressive, I know, but I don't know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it feels like. Well, I, I mean, he's such a, a, a creature, such a unique, extraordinary human that I remember one quote of his saying, I was getting ready for bed, which is quite a process, as you can imagine, because of his illness. And he said, and I was thinking about the event horizon of a black hole. <laughs> I'm getting to bed thinking, hmm, should I brush my teeth? Yeah, no, you know, like, not too many people can say, not the brushing the teeth, the event horizon. Yeah, yeah, I like to think that was the way around you meant it. Uh, with, with the music, did that come along early as well? Or was that something which developed for you a bit later? Um, I always played guitar, uh, or I was... I'm not a very good guitar player, but I always had had guitars and I always played. And then it was really kind of in, 
I guess I would have been in university that I had a friend there who's a great guitar player and as we started playing and singing and then that kind of continued and and then slowly got more and more involved and then it just became too hard to sustain because we I don't you, you kind of really actually have to do that you can't <laughs> it's pretty hard to have it as a hobby you know and also a hobby is writing and a hobby is an actor and then a hobby is a father so something had to give and the music kind of took a, a step back but I, it was always great and actually david Kelly and i were talking the other day and i think we're gonna he's been working on songs he's just actually released a little uh a cd that i think is on itunes and uh so we've decided we're as soon as we can because we're in lockdown here as well we're gonna start getting together and maybe work some stuff up so Oh, well, that takes care of a question which I got asked quite a lot to, to give to you about, like, your future plans with music and with working with uh, David. Uh, yeah, I think he's got, well, he's crazy. I mean, I think he's got, like, he said he's got something like six new, seven new songs. And he sent me a demo of one of them. It sounds great. So I think that will be fun. Maybe take a few weeks this year and we might do it out in the Badlands. So just bunker down and play music and see if we've got enough stuff and then we'll record it we'll throw it out there <laughs> and you mentioned there about, about uh, lockdown so uh, what it's been like for you and how has it kind of affected your work uh, the, the lockdown and everything with covid uh well i mean of course the entire film television business particularly the theater has the theater is just shuttered and there's some question as to how some of these companies will survive and whether the smaller theater companies will make it through. And even some of the larger ones in Canada. It's been very uh, hard for them. Uh, and television film has largely shut down. It's opened here and there. There are bits and pieces of things shooting, but it's been <clears throat> very difficult. Yeah. I did a little thing for, I think it was FX. Uh, when was that? Before Christmas or just after? And uh, it's a, a really strange shooting on a set. Everybody masked up and shields and you know you're rehearsing with somebody and you don't see their mouths until you then you take everything off and you do you actually run the cameras and then everything goes back on yeah it's pretty strange i think it will get a little simpler as time goes along productions will get more used to it but it's it's just been really awful for a lot of people because a lot of productions that were fairly close to going smaller movies and that kind of thing couldn't afford the insurance or couldn't yeah couldn't hold their financing together so there's an awful lot of stuff that's falling apart and and we'll see what happens when we come out the other side of it i mean independent film film distribution film worldwide was in a quite a state because of the sort of diminishing audiences at the cinema and I'm, who knows how, what, what the effects of all of this will be. It may be that a lot more people just aren't interested in going out in gatherings, or it may be quite reverse that all of a sudden when it's lifted, everybody wants to go out and go crowd into the cinema. So I, I think there's a lot of big questions. As for me personally, it's been fine. I have absolutely no complaints. In fact, you become very aware of just how staggeringly privileged you are. You know, I mean, I have this, place in the country outside of the city and it's there are many days go by where the COVID is, seems very distant and the problems that a lot of people are suffering I don't feel at all so I, I'm quite aware of that although I, we have been trying to 
when we can, we have friends of ours who don't have, you know, live in small apartments come up and spend time so they can get out and walk in the woods and with their kids. And so it's been, but for us, it's been, you know, it's been fine. Apart from spending lots of time looking at the news around the world, which is fairly, I think it's hard for everybody in this elastic pandemic time to, I don't know how to describe that. I suppose it is. That's what it feels like. Time has just become really odd as though we're all trapped in some kind of state of suspended animation waiting for life to begin again. And I think that's extraordinarily difficult for so many people. And I, I obviously, I can't at all complain. And if I start to feel, you know, ethically sorry for myself, I just have to remind myself of that, that, I'm lucky and a lot of people aren't and and I know a lot of those people so it's it's such a hard time that the whole world is in right now and, and not just because of the pandemic I think politically there's so much unrest a great deal of instability and I think everybody's feeling a level of a kind of stress disorder that's hard to know exactly how to deal with it i think if we can start to move around and gather again and then a lot of that will settle a bit but i am yeah seeing it a lot around me and people in my own extended family and how's it been for you i will say um oh it's um it's been an unusual time i mean uh, i now work in uh, i actually work for the nhs uh, doing some of the uh, follow-up calls about covid and like, so the job I do right now wouldn't exist previously. I'm working from home doing that, which has kind of been had its own challenges. Um, it's just such an unusual time. Like you say, I think it's just hit people in a lot of weird ways, a lot of kind of mental health issues coming out for a lot of people. And uh, I, I will actually say like, you know, not to blow smoke too much to you, but like uh, doing things like this and having uh, people like you kind of coming on and talking, I know it makes a huge difference to a lot of people. So I know it speaks for a lot of people for thanking you for doing this today. It, it does make a huge difference to people. No, it's my pleasure. It's great. Getting on to the Jew South of it all, of course. Uh, so wh- when did you first hear about Jew South and what were your first impressions when you saw the script? Um, I was I was actually living in Los Angeles and I was kind of making the rounds and auditioning for things. And they, I got a call, my agent got a call from, or I got a call from my agent who said, there is this script called Do South, and Paul Haggis is the writer, and it's by this, be produced by Robert Lantos in Toronto. And at the time that I was there, I wasn't really looking to get into a series, because you had to sign on for a long time, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't sort of iffy about that. And he said, my agent said, well, it's, I've read it, it's fantastic. And, uh, and I said, well, I just, I don't even want to read it because I don't want to kind of get seduced by it, you know. So then a year yeah. went, so it was, it sat, I didn't look at it. And I think a year went by as they were trying to cast it with somebody else and they never seemed to find anyone that they felt was right. And then they came back and he um, just said, they're really, it's a great offer. And I just really just read the first 10 pages because I mean, he, he knew that I would probably get completely hooked. But I was laughing out loud by the end of the second page, I think, or third page. It was so well-written. It was so funny. Uh, it was also completely weird. It wasn't like anything else that was going on uh, on television at the time. And the part was just bewildering. I, I mean, I could kind of see what the character might be, but I couldn't understand 
how you would ever go about doing that. I mean, I, I really just thought I have no idea how to do this, which actually seemed like the perfectly good reason to do it. So yeah, started yeah, and then it was <laughs> kind of you know on the bubble as they used to call it in L.A. Where you'd be, you have lots of support, then, but not quite enough to make it a hit. So it was kind of in this in-between world for quite a while. And even the pilot, I don't think most people thought it would get picked up and ordered into a series in that first year. Um, so I remember somebody calling me from CBS saying, "I'm I love this show and I want to help me sell it to everybody that we should order it." Um, she said, "What should I say?" And I said, "I don't." I just think it's like a great antidote right now. Just say it's a it's one of the few it would be one of the few shows on television with a big heart. She said, "Are you mad? I can't go into a boardroom full of cynical programming executives and tell them we should order this because it's got a heart." I said, oh, well, then don't ask me my advice. I think I'm not a programming executive. <laughs> But it seems like that's always the way. The shows with heart and like which actually managed to write it sincerely and without being saccharine, which is a kind of hard line to do. They're the ones which seem to have the most difficulty getting made. But when they do and they hit, they hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of, you know, television is such an odd beast. It's so it's it's and particularly now it's very weird. Uh compared to any other time in its history. It was a very tiny operation for a long time. There were a few channels. And now there's just a proliferation of them, obviously. And, yeah. and there's just a, such an incredible wide variety of stuff that you can watch. Then it was still quite, even, even with Due South, it was still quite contained. And <clears throat> so there was a kind of inherited wisdom of what will and will not work with audiences. And they were nervous of going outside of the parameters of that. So they, they do South was just weird to them. It wasn't, is it a cop show? Is it a comedy? Is it a, you know, they couldn't really figure it out. It, and they had a hard time at CBS figuring out how to sell it originally, you know, to, to present it to an audience and advertising. Cause well, what is it exactly? Well, it, and I think that's, in those days, you know, there, a cop show was a cop show. It was exactly, they were all more or less the same, but you would kind of change up the location and what clothes the people wore. And this didn't fit into any one of those boxes. So. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to talk a bit about the casting straight from the get-go in that pilot, which uh, Gordon Pinson, obviously, for instance, was in few scenes, really, in that first pilot. Uh what was it kind of work, like working with him and uh, like how important was it to get just that casting dead right from the beginning? Well, I, they, I mean, just about everyone will say this. I think it works in this field is that casting is kind of everything. It, it doesn't matter. Everything else sort of doesn't matter because in the end, all the audience is really looking at are the people who are, who are those people, who are those characters. And so if you get that wrong, it doesn't matter how great the writing is or the photography or the costuming or anything. It's, it'll all fall apart. And I think, I mean, Gordy is such an iconic figure in Canada. He's been, like, we did, I just called him either dad or, or, or he was Mr. Canada. <laughs> and he, and he, the Maritimes from Newfoundland, so he has that whole kind of oddball pedigree. And, and we didn't know each other. I mean, actually, I, I 
maybe we had met before, but I think we, I'm pretty sure we met in the bar at the hotel in Skagway when we were in Alaska when we were shooting the pilot. And he was really weird at the time because he had lost a uh, play that he'd been writing on his computer had crashed and he'd lost it. So he was in a state of mourning. So my first <laughs> encounter recording was odd. I mean, he, he was in a bar in Alaska that used to be a whorehouse and he had lost a play and he was in mourning and we were drinking scotch. So it was gradually it normalized <laughs> in our relationship. Became yeah. <laughs> And he's just, he's a wonderful guy. Crazy as a loon. He has the most whacked out creative ideas. And, and he was, and we laughed our heads off all the time. It was a fantastic relationship on screen and off. Uh, still is. And I, I mean, the whole idea of him when I was running the show, but because I had to try to convince him to come back and he said he wanted to be more involved in the plots. And I said, but you're dead. Like, I'm not sure how you can. Participate. So well, I can point to clues, and also there's stuff I can do. And I need a, I need a place. I need an office. Where? Well, it could be in your office. Said, well, you can't. That's like the real work world, Cordy. I got my office. He said, "Well, I could have an office where in the closet." And I, I did. I remember laughing and thinking he's crazy. And then I woke up the next morning. I thought, "Yeah, well, why couldn't he? There could be an office in there. Most people would open the door, and there'll just be a closet. And then I open the door, and there's this office in the north. So." That was all his idea. So he was always coming up with these very crazy things. Yeah, he's one. I'd be, rem I'd be remiss if I didn't also ask about kind of uh, working with David Marciano. And how did you get, like, it seems like the chemistry just hit from, from the first frame. And it just kind of like, uh, that set the standard, which just continued throughout the show. Yeah, it was very, very quick. And I, I didn't know David at all, and we met in, uh, I guess we met in Los Angeles, and I can't recall whether I was, I think I was help, helping with screen tests or, or something like that. Um, and he was there, and he was just wonderful. Like, immediately, his look was, is in everything about David has absolutely nothing to, to do with me, and vice versa. We have no common... There's absolutely no common touchstones in our background. And the only thing that we have in similar is that we're actors. And so that, that it always had that kind of weird, I don't really understand you feeling all the time because uh, I don't think we ever did, you know. And I think that it just worked on camera. And that's also something that's a little hard to, that it's a very mysterious thing, why two people on camera click and others don't. And uh, But with him, yeah, it was immediately apparent. And the, and it and it was also quite easy um, to execute, and it wasn't like we had to think about what our two characters' reactions were to something. Because well, whatever I would think, it absolutely got nothing to do with whatever he would think, and vice versa. So it would, we were always at some kind of oppositional point in the scenes, and then they just played. Yeah, and he's also hilarious. Yeah. So it felt like there was just it was perfectly written so that uh, Ray had you know a, a benny inside him which wanted to come out and like he wanted to be a good guy but he kind of like just had other instincts sometimes and benny brought that on him and ray vice versa like you know benny sometimes wanted to step out the box of these kind of lines which he had drawn around him uh and you know ray got to bring that out of him it was just a perfect mirror kind of situation it felt 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and that they both helped each other, that they helped each other shore up those aspects of the personality that were lacking, I think, or needed a certain kind of course correction. I think they were very good for each other, just humanly. And it just made both of them... Yeah, it just made them both like a little bit um, more rounded as a person, like with that extra element from the other, that the other gave them. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I hope. What so. I always felt like when we were working on it that when you'd sort of know that you'd hit the sweet spot of the scene if it felt like we had we had been able to finish what the other one started the scene with, if that makes any sense. So that we were yeah. contributing to each other. Yeah. I mean, a question I'm sure you must get a lot. Uh, Kerry Ann Strutz asked, uh, do you see your co-stars from Due South still to this day? Um, no, actually not that often. I see, I've see. i seen Gordy on and off. Uh, David, of course, lives in... I've seen him... I saw him a little while ago, and he was in Toronto working on something. And it was great to, to get together with him again. Um, I used to see everybody a little bit more, but we all sort of, you know... It's been quite a long time now, so we kind of moved along. Callum Rennie replaced David in that last chunk. I, we remained quite close friends. Um, but he's in Vancouver, and so I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him in a in a while. Uh, yeah, no, that's odd. That I I I was quite remained quite close to a lot of the directors as well. Sadly, as George Bloomfield passed away a few years ago, and then awfully uh, Steve DeMarco died earlier this year. So, yeah, which is a very, he seemed very young for that. But then I guess, you know, we get older. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but it's, uh, it was, it was kind of, I mean, one of the things about that show that was a little bit strange, we worked so hard, our hours were so long, that we didn't, nobody really hung out, you know, or met up afterwards. Like, I was just always exhausted, and the thought of then going and spending more time with people that I just spent 16 hours with just wasn't really appealing. And yes. we did spend so much time on the set together, it was, we spent a lot of It'll, there are lots of conversations and we got to know each other, I think, really well. So it's a bit weird, yeah, to, now that I think of it. We did sort of all drift a little bit. But then everybody, so many people were at certain ages where suddenly their lives are going to start to shift, you know, or you just had children, or that there was a lot of, and other people went on, of course, to do other things. And, but for the time that we were together, it really was a family, and that's the cast and the crew. I mean, everybody was in the same, it felt like just an extended family most of the time yeah i mean something which uh does come up quite a lot there's the rumors about a due south reboot and uh angela riley has asked uh are the rumors of a due south reboot true and anything you can share with us if so um well the the rumors i there have always been rumors that it was going to get restarted there is some conversation going on right now, but I don't think I can share any of it without the, all of the other people killing me. It's not, there is absolutely nothing has been formalized and there's no, it's not like it's sold anywhere or anything like that, but there is, we are in starting to have conversations about 
how it might be brought up and in what kind of configuration. It's a very different time. So in terms of bringing it up, bring it back in whatever form, it's trying to figure out whether the, how you bring that up to today's climate. And I'm not, I don't think we know that yet. Don't think I, I think we could do with Benton's hope about now. Yeah, I think we do need a little something, don't we? Yeah, there's there is there are there are conversations about that. That's all I will be held to. Well, I mean, there. something which actually, it, it does actually lead on to my next question from uh, Jane right, Jane Harvey. Uh, she asks, uh, "What do you think keeps due south so timely?" And I think it still is. Like we've been watching back the show recently for for this show, and uh, just the like uh, other than the '90s fashion, which is always you know uh, just fun to see in the show. I think kind of the plots you can just do right now again, I think. Probably. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that just is different in terms of what we now kind of think about the attitudes towards policing and the politics of policing. And, you know, a lot of stuff has actually shifted. And do South existed at a time when there was a kind of fixed, that it wasn't in transition in a way, it was sort of a fixed thing. And I think that's somehow in the <clears throat> the wallpaper of the show and the, whatever the decoration is in the background, I mean, not literally, but in what is the society like, that's where it has to exist. And so you have to have really have a look at what all of that means. But yes, I mean, I think the, the, asp- the, the hopeful, trusting nature of the central character is really, is always welcome, I, I'm sure. A good person is supposed to, you know, how much drama is really populated with with very interesting but incredibly flawed people. Not that Benton was perfect, but that there is, it was basically upright and good. And we don't see a lot of that on even still today on television or in film. No. I, I mean, it's kind I, of, I, I, yeah, like I say, I think we, we could do with him right now. Yeah. It's sort of a weird achievement that Haggis did was to create a character as good and not have that big dull. I mean, the reason no. we have so many characters is that they're just sort of dramatically more interesting. You know, if if Richard III were a lovely guy who handed out presents to everybody and took care of all of the peasants, we probably wouldn't have a play about him. You know what I mean? So the, I think the reverse, the, the thing the thing might be true, though, that uh, people say, for instance, Superman, like he's kind of a hard character to write for the very same reasons. For me, I think uh, when he is faced with such a uh, difficult world and a world which sometimes wants to do so much wrong, like it's the neuroticness of being the one good person, I think, and and trying to put that into the world, I think, is where you kind of get the drama. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I just, I guess I'm just saying that it was, it's, it was a, such a peculiarity. It was not, it isn't, was not the norm and I'm not, and it is not the norm now. So it's a question of figuring out how that character exists today, I suppose, is what the struggle will be. But I certainly there, we are talking about it. Exciting. Uh, we've got um, Micah Colton, uh, age six, who's watching today, has asked a question. Uh, that, there's two questions. She would like to ask whether you got hurt jumping off buildings or cars, and if you were allowed to do much of your own stunt work. 
Also, what's your favourite Due South quote so she can put it on her bedroom wall? Oh, well, I did do a fair number of the stunts that weren't completely dangerous. Um, and I'll tell you why, not because I'm particularly brave or skilled. It just made my day a little shorter. Because if you have to have the stuntman in, you have to wait around until they've done the stunt. And then you, when, wherever they land, then you go in and you do your piece. So if I just would fall off the car, it made it a little easier to do. Like a short, because I didn't want to keep working. And yes, we all got hurt a little bit because when you're doing so much of that stuff, it's uh, you're going to fall down or you're going to bump into something, but nothing grievous. I never, the worst I had was a dislocated shoulder, but other than that, fine. Um, and I don't, I, I, you know, I really don't know if I have a favorite quote, but I, I think it actually just is the one that he uses all the time, which was something my father always said and many other people did as well, but my dad's thing was, thank you kindly. And I, I think that's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It really sums up the character somehow, just as that like, little yeah. phrase at the end of everything. Uh, we've got a, uh, I did reach out to a few of your co-stars uh, and people we've interviewed on here. One came back to me and it's Catherine Bruyere. I asked oh. if she had any questions for you. So she said, uh, maybe did you know that uh, she almost drooled on you by mistake during the scene where she was tending to your wounds in Juliet's bleeding <laughs> due to a partially frozen lip. Were you aware of this? Due to a partially frozen what? Lip, lip. Hmm. I did not. <laughs> I do now. <laughs> she said it was due to that. I think there's a lot of our female audience who might have drooled over for you for other reasons, but this just sounds not entirely honest Catherine but we'll go along with that there's something wrong with your lip <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, like just off the back of that maybe you could talk a bit about kind of the, the relationship between uh, Fraser not only and Elaine but also the other kind of uh, female characters on the show and what was that like to play well that there was kind of the odd one of the odd things about about him as a character to get used to is to not notice, to not be aware that he had a, an effect on others. Yeah. To not be aware that he was uh, attractive or that he was desirable or anything. Like, to really not have that at all is quite a strange thing to play, actually. Like, Particularly if you can see it happening in front of you and just be able to learn how to be oblivious to it. So that took me yeah. that took a while to get kind of used to. But then it's sort of wonderful to play because the relationship isn't, doesn't have anything to do with the sexual aspect of a relationship. It is just person to person. So it was wonderful to go to work and do that, you know, minus all of the normal complexities of life. And I don't like to go too fanboy on this, but like I'm going to ask one slight fanboy question, if I might. And, and I asked this uh, when we uh, spoke to Francesca herself. Uh, like, so do you think Franny and, uh, and Benton did end up together in, in that show? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, cause I could say yes. They they might have, and then no, they probably shouldn't have. Yeah, I don't I don't know. 
I don't know if that would have been a good okay, thing. Fair enough. <laughs> I, 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 I did really love the fact that in that episode, they did leave it to the imagination as to whether or not it had happened. It was just left in a mystery at the end of that one. Yeah. Yeah, some of, it's, some of it is much better left to your imagination. It is indeed. Uh, Victoria's Secret. Now, of course, this is an episode which always comes up. It's a lot of people's favorite. Is that one which felt like you were doing something special in, in those episodes? Um, yeah. I mean, they were beautifully, really beautifully written, and the, sh- and the shooting of it was great. And also it was great to do because it was, um, you know, it was his, his history and his most human side and his most, and to a great extent, his most private side, because he never really talked about those things. And that, that's also an odd thing about his characters, how not closed, but how little he, or how he played his life kind of close to his chest. And I thought that was wonderful when it started to come around. I remember talking to Paul about it we really shouldn't have something about his past because I think it's, it would be good to know like an anchor to his personality. That, and, and I thought that was just such fantastic writing and Melina was so beautiful in it. And yeah. Yeah, that was really, and it was lovely to do it. <clears throat> it was really wonderful stuff to film. Yeah, it was just the way it kind of um, blurred his lines so much in that episode. And mm-hmm. kind of, uh, he was about to kind of like make that final step of going with her just at the end. It just, uh, just so much pathos of that. And it, it was kind of like echoed for so many episodes afterwards. It was just a great engine for story, it seemed. Yeah. 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 And, th- and it's, those are, are, they're sort of hard to do those kind of, I mean, maybe the other way of putting it is Due South was always great too because the characters were unfolding as we they it wasn't just the same episode every week. I mean there was a fair bit of similar similarities in between the hours, but there was this thing that was unfolding about their backgrounds and their histories. And I think for him, for the audience to really have a sense of him, a deeper sense of him, that that, that was just perfect it couldn't have been better yeah uh we've got another question uh, this one's from uh, margaret McAllister, another, another one of our fantastic nhs workers uh, she turned mm. 50 last week so shout out there uh do you and uh oh sorry no we've already covered this about the music with david kelly so we'll skip past that but hi to uh to margaret uh and i mean I, i'll ask a question off the back of that Music seems such just a key part of Due South. I actually watched an episode at one stage. Uh, they put them on uh, on YouTube, but without the music. And it was just like, this just seems, it, it was like something had been sucked out of it. Yeah. It was just so key, the music to it. Um, what were your feelings like? And did you get to hear a lot of that as you were doing the episodes? Or was that kind of all later? We never really knew what this um, purchased songs would be, the songs that we bought to put in. Um, although I think actually, you know, I have this funny feeling that Paul had told me that he had, uh, a Sarah McLaughlin song for Victoria's Secret. And so then that, I thought, oh my God, that's going to be, then you, when you have that in your mind, it's, 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 you really can kind of see it as you're doing it, but see it, hear it. But it does add that layer of, of 
acting. But a lot of the time we didn't know what those, what the songs were going to be. But this, the music score itself, we kind of had, they had settled into the, into a pattern that was really great. And so you could kind of feel it on some of the scenes or it would be unconsciously sort of running in the back of your mind. And I think, you know, between Jack Lenz and Jay Simcoe and everybody who worked on it, it was just, I thought it was like a perfect soundtrack. But they, yeah. It was always really fantastic. You know, there are whole episodes, there were episodes where you'd have the whole song play out. And, you know, for most shows, you would never take the time to do that. But it was just uh, perfect, not only for setting the scene, but also you have so many bits of business going on during, like, the music playing. It was just uh, incredible and very brave, I think, of shows to do that. Yeah, I I guess you're kind of right. I haven't really seen that much that that I can think of that would be similar, you know, other shows. But there was that thing of the... Of a, we, we would have action and wouldn't sometimes it was just sort of action music accompanying it but other times there would be songs that lifted the action up into another so the whole episode would lift up into another level because of the support of the music it's really unbelievably critical uh, in anything you're doing whether it's a film or television what what that soundtrack is it's it's so much of how we I mean, if you just did an experiment and you see a bit of action and you put on one song and you put on a diametrically opposed song, everything about that action sequence changes depending on what the tune is. And so finding the right approach to it is really critical. And there were a lot of people who were contributing to all of that. And and, and I think the collective kind of what we arrived at was really great. Yeah, I know. I always loved it. I I liked looking at the episodes to see, oftentimes, what the music would be, like what what was coming in. And yeah. it was, well, a lot of times it was really surprising. Oh, that's fantastic! I never was. Uh, and Julie uh, Ranu has put, uh, "What happened to your Mountie uniform?" Now a lot of people ask this. And do you have any m- memories of when you visited the UK during the nineties? Um. I have no idea what happened to the Mountie uniforms. I had a bunch of, I had a lot. I had ones that were wrecked. I had ones that were lighter because the heavy surge in the summer is just, was just too, when it would be really super hot and humid, it was too heavy. So I had light ones, heavier ones, even heavier ones, lined ones for the winter. (laughs) I had ones where the arms were ripped off. I had, I had a lot of them and I have no idea where they've all gone. Um, Somewhere. Somebody's got them. Some sneaky person has a lot of money up. Um, so the, the ones with the arms ripped off just sound like they're kind of a hipster choice. <laughs> I can't remember why. I know I had one with the arm ripped off, but I can't remember what it was. Why it was ripped off? Anyway, with that, and there were a lot that had bullet holes in them because we put squibs in them. So not a lot. There were a few. Yeah, it's, it seemed I had a ton. I didn't at first though. There was just the one. And it was kind of started gradually started to realize fairly quickly, we're we're gonna need a few more. <laughs> um, I do remember that trip to England. It was crazy. I do remember that doing signing things at somewhere in Oxford Street, I can't remember it was a HMV? HMV, yeah, that was just wild. Yeah. And and uh I have to say, though, my very favorite 
thing about the whole trip, which was quite whirlwind. And I don't think I ever actually quite got over the jet lag. because I pretty much landed and then had to, you know, dawn and then had to go straight into doing interviews. So I was a bit goggle eyed, but the, uh, well, I remember two things. I remember going on to some breakfast show and the guy I was following had just released to his first CD and it was a, quite an exceptional CD and it was, I don't know, like a hundred different tracks of train engine sounds, which was incredibly foreign to me. Even having spent a fair bit of time in England, I do know about train spotters. It's not a big thing in North America, but I never thought you'd put that on a, on a record. And so it was kind of, I couldn't get over it. I sat down and I still kind of, I want to hear more of these train train sounds. Paul, Paul, I just hope you haven't all these years think thought that's what we get down to in the UK. We do not listen to train sounds as a rule. That that's an oddity. That's an outlier. I I think this guy sold a lot of records. It is pretty fascinating. Anyway, that was one standout event. And then what else? Oh, Paul, I think I don't know if it was that trip. It might have been because Paul and I went. Haggis and I went to see a production. I won't even name it. doesn't matter what it is, but it was something in the West End and it was like a big musical, which is not like my favorite thing. There were a lot of plays that I, at the time I thought, well, if we've got one night out, I'd like to go and see this or that. And he said, no, I think we've got these wonderful tickets that BBC has bought. Oh, okay. So we go to this musical, which was fine, but somebody died in the course of it. Like I actually keeled over a very elderly man died in the, we were up in the balcony. So it was on the sides and and a guy came in, and it was the whole procedure of it was silent. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. It was horrifying, and yet, at this, in hindsight, it's like bizarre that a St. John's ambulance guy showed up, felt for a pulse, turned to the wife, and said, and she, in a such a restrained way, went, like there was no crying or ah, and the show kept going, and then the ambulance fellow tilted him back and dragged him out the fire escape. I thought, that is very English. See, that really would not happen in North America. I think in Canada, it would be, we have to stop the show. Somebody has passed away. And then Haggis said, well, we should, it was like in the first half, he said, we should see about getting our money back. I said, what are you talking about? In the first place, we didn't buy the ticket. And secondly, what are we are going to say that your production is killing people? Like, <laughs> and so then we won. It still was all those odd closing hours for food. And we were wandering around West End looking for something to eat. And there was nothing open except for Pizza Hut. So this was our, maybe our second night in London together. And there we were reduced to eating a pizza at Pizza Hut. It just seemed perfect somehow. <laughs> Although, you know, you say about the British being reserved, I'm surprised people after she went, people aren't going to like pull yourself together. You know, that, that's a big reaction for the British, you know. <laughs> no, I didn't go that far. It was extraordinary. Sad. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, we've got a question from the floor where it's one of our viewers at the moment. I'm sorry, we haven't been able to pull your name through. Uh, you haven't given permission to StreamYard, but um, love men with brooms. I was going to go on to this. Um, are you a fan of curling in real life? I I find it surprisingly addictive to watch during the Olympics. Me too. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about uh, Men with Brooms? What a fantastic film and uh, kind of something which you put so much into. Oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um 
we it's kind of weird because Robert Lantos, who, who was the it was his company that produced Do South. I wanted to do uh, actually, I think it was Passchendaele. And he said, well, you should maybe try something else first before you take on something that big. <clears throat> he said, why don't you do a, I think you should do a hockey movie. And I thought about that for a short bit of time. The problem for hockey in Canada is it's, it is our, such our, we think of it as our national sport. It's our sport. It's, as a result, it's got a, <laughs> there you are. It's got a lot of politics in it for Canadians. And I couldn't really figure out any way to, I didn't, I was unable to see a simple way of doing a, a good hockey story. Plus, yeah. the other thing about hockey is it's really hard to photograph. It's a very fast game where nothing, it's not up and down. Uh, and, and the speed of it is difficult. And the other thing is that actors, if you did not grow up playing hockey, you cannot pretend that you know how to play hockey. Like, it is really hard to fake that. <clears throat> you have to have been on skates all your life. And so it kind of limits how, what you can do. Yeah. And it happened, and I think it was, it may have been the Olympics. Anyway, curling was on. And I was, no, I was not a particular fan. And I was watching it. And this, I mean, it is kind of, if you, when you first see it, it is kind of funny. Um, I soon learned that, it is, it is not. It's all quite serious. But, I, you know, when you first look at it, it's people with brooms and these rocks and they're yelling and and it's slow. The other thing about curling is and it's And it's so really... deceptive as well. When I've seen it in the Olympics, yeah. it looks like it's so easy. Like, you know, the basic rules are easy. Then being good at it's really hard. Is the oh, reason. it's... I, and I... So... I said, no, I don't want to do a hockey movie, but I'll, I, I would be interested in trying to do something about curling or with curling as the kind of background. So anyway, that was finally decided upon, and I wrote it with John Krasank, but the, neither of us had ever even actually been to a curling match when we'd finished the first draft. We had all sorts of books, like Curling for Dummies and consultants that we could call. And, and then I finally went to a... I don't know. It wasn't one of the big bond spiels. The first one I went to was something nearby. And I loved it. I thought, this is crazy fun to watch. Because the tension of watching that rock just slowly go all the way down that ice is really pretty intense. It's, it's, and it is astonishing what they can do. And particularly when you get on the ice, in, almost inevitably everybody's going to fall down. And then you try to do that nice, long, slow thing, but you can't hold your balance and you fall over and your rock goes way over off to the left. I mean, it is really, really phenomenally difficult to be good at that. Um, but yeah, no, we were, I was, a, I knew nothing about it. I was an inadvertent snob about it. And, but it's like anything. I think if people are exceptionally good at it, it's really engaging to watch. Yeah, and uh, something I, I wanted to ask you about was both in Due South and in that movie, uh, working with uh, Leslie Nielsen. And I have to compliment uh, both you in that film and uh, Makers Due South in, in Due South, the, the way it was written. It is one of the um, later performances by Leslie Nielsen where he was really well written for. He really, they brought out his dramatic side as well as the comedy side. There are a lot of people, I think, who watched The Naked Gun and wrote for him in a very, very silly way, which I think is such a waste of such an actor. 
Whereas he had, he was really at his best when he could. Oh, I lost you. Back then, they could the way he. Uh... It might be my internet at this farm. You're gone a little loud. I, maybe I'll just start answering about Leslie. Uh, I didn't get all of your questions. But yeah, I mean, Leslie started his life as a dramatic yeah. actor. I mean, he was born, I think, north of the Arctic Circle. He had rickets as a kid because they didn't have any fresh fruit or vegetables. And I think it was rickets. And then gradually he's been, he'd been moving south until he ended up in Los Angeles. But his, his early career, the biggest part of his career was playing dramatic, dramatic characters. Uh, I mean, he was, he himself was a goofball. So that was always kind of part of his personality. And then finally it got capitalized on and he had this sudden huge, <clears throat> extraordinarily productive and fun last third of his career. So his third act in life was fantastic. I don't know if anybody's heard the story of his funeral. I I couldn't go because I was working, but it was in, he had moved to Florida because he was crazy and he kept moving away to wherever that didn't have, that had lower taxes as though he ever actually spent his money. I, don't, I mean, <laughs> he was a little nuts. Anyway, he, was a, he died and he was in Florida and so he did demanded that there be an open casket because he thought people ought to see what an old dead guy looks like. Not only that, but there was a police uh, motorcycle escort playing the theme from uh, Police Academy, I guess, or anyhow. And I don't, he had a few speeches, but the best part about it was Barbara was his wife, his widow now, had a list. He'd given her a list of people that she had to identify as they came to the open casket to pay respects and hidden inside the casket was a fart machine because that's, that was his kind of signature thing is he had this little, he would make these fart noises. And so there were the people would be coming along and they'd be all choked up and crying. And then there'd be this huge fart and then they get, Oh, Leslie, damn you. And then they'd move along. And Barbara just kept going down the list as the people came along that were identified it that deserved the fart upon his demise. That's, that's maybe the best Leslie story of all. Go out on a fart. You know, he was he was fantastic to work with. Great, dramatic actor, tireless when we were working, like just keep going. Even at his age, which was quite advanced. And uh, really funny. Like, really funny. He could take anything and make it funny. Which is sort of a bit of a thing for him. He said, you know, the problem is anything could be funny. And he was right. Getting on to our next question. This is from uh, Lucy Caton. And she's asked, uh, what was it like working with uh, the dogs who played Diefenbaker? And I will actually give a quick shout out to my dog, uh, Benton, who's named after your character. Ah, that's lovely. Um, well, there are quite a number of dogs, uh, as is common with any kind of show, or whether you're using horses, you usually have doubles, they call them. And so it kind of depended on which dog was around. But they were all wonderful. They're dogs. You know, some of them are more inventive than others. Some are more obedient than others. Some are easier to train. Some are smarter. Some are dumber. But they are they all have their own quality, I think. The one we had towards the end was really lovely because that dog is quite funny. It would, uh, Draco was his name, I think. And he would just um, make stuff up. That dog was it would ad lib. I remember going, walking down a hallway, doing one of those conversations with, uh, <clears throat> I guess with Callum, and we'd have those long conversations in the police station. And 
Draco's for the rehearsal is running right alongside me. And then as soon as the camera's on, he runs along. And as he's going, he jumps up onto a bench and runs along up onto a table and then comes down and keeps going. I thought that's like, he knows when the camera's on and he knows when he's going to show off. And then there were some of the dogs who would kind of sit, eventually became kind of bewildering. It's quite a, a lot for a dog to do. I mean, they have, they have a lot of responsibility on the set. And the thing about them is mostly the actor is not the one who is interacting with the dog. It is mostly the trainer, the dog's eyes are on. So you have to figure out where to position the trainer in order to shoot. Stuff. I mean, sometimes they would, we would interact with them, but a lot of the time they're, I mean, they're, they're going to work. They're, they're working dogs. Yeah. Lucy also asked uh, where you played uh, Benton and him, like we discussed before about kind of like a, a white and white kind of their character he was. Were there any expectations did you feel uh, when you met people, uh, when you were playing him, when you met the fans? And did anyone have any expect expectations of you as a result? Um, I don't. Yeah, I kind of did feel that from time to time. And I think it's one of those things that sometimes can happen in television where, or movies where you're, you get confused with the character that you're playing. So you are, you inhabit the same qualities as that character. And then of course, no, there's nobody like Benton really. I mean, I've never run across anyone like that. There are aspects of me that are in him, but there are aspects of me that he doesn't have, which is why he's a great character. And I am not. <laughs> so I think there's that, um, it, because it's it, but the thing about a tell, and particularly then in those days when people would watch it kind of once a week, not kind of, it would watch it once a week and the family would gather together with friends or whatever. And that becomes part of your life. It's someone who lives in your life with you. The movies are a little bit different because you go and it's a completed experience and you may love that actor, but you do kind of love that actor almost more than the character. Whereas I think a television say so you, you love that character because you've adopted him into your life and that's just it was i didn't realize that until i kind of was doing this and, and doing this part and I thought, oh yeah of course and then i think it's quite releasing like i didn't feel any responsibility to be as perfect but you know it's it's a it's a wonderful feeling actually that you you're part of something that people have embraced. It's a it really does make going to work fabulous. In fact, way better than going to work and doing something that people hate. Uh, I mean, thing the thing I love about that, and again, like uh, in Men with Brooms, you kind of brought in a lot of kind of uh, Canada in there. And uh, was there was there a consciousness about kind of how you portrayed Canada in in that show and in that film? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were very aware of that Canadian iconography is kind of funny. I mean, that our national animal symbol is a beaver, which is an odd looking animal and appears on our coins. And that there, there is this sort of the, the lumberjacks, that all of that stuff that is kind of the cliche of Canada is really hilarious and it's great. And it's not something that most Canadians most we mostly live in cities, so we're not we're not mostly out in the woods hacking down giant trees. But the iconography of it is great, and I think it does ultimately kind of reflect a certain 
a certain spirit about the country that we do have, but it is symbolic, you know. And so I think we were pretty aware of it. And then it actually took quite tactile form that I think this is true, at least for the first year. I'm not sure if it continued, but in the crew, I didn't know about this until quite late, but there was a Canadian penny in every shot that we ever did somewhere hidden on the set. And they were, but I, oh, I remember how I found out about it because we're all ready to do this take of something and a camera is going to push in on me and I'm going to say something and they're just about to call action. Go, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. A guy ran in and he sort of stuck something on the side of a table. And I said, what is that? It was a penny. I said, what's this? I'll explain to you later. But it was, there always had to be in every single shot, not just every scene, in every shot, there had to be a penny somewhere, which yeah. seems ridiculous. But I think it was kind of like, I don't know, like dogs peeing on something. It's ours. It's Canadian. <laughs> I think the genius about uh, the Canadian sense of humour is, is what I enjoy about the British sense of humour as well. Like, uh, no one can take the mickey out of us like we can. If someone else is doing it, we oh, yeah, yeah. if we're doing it, it's funny. That's right. We're really defensive if someone's making fun of us, but but we're good at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a question from Lenka. She's asked, uh, what was the primary motive or idea behind uh, making Passchendaele? When, when did this story first come to you? Oh, that it just started years and years and years ago with my grandfather who had been in <clears throat> the First World War and his, uh, we had many long conversations about his time there, but he didn't, he didn't talk about it mostly uh, for most of his life until I was about 15, I think, and we were fishing and I had been badgering about what, what, what was it like? But also like a 15 year old d d dumb question, like, did you kill, did you kill Germans? And, although I think I might've been quite interested in that because I'm part, my, part of my heritage is German. And we think of that's odd. I've got both in one, the, how are these enemies? And anyway, he did start to, it was harrowing, you know, stories were terrible. Also though, some of them were very funny. A lot of them were him trying to reconstruct where he moved, where they moved the regiment around. But, yeah, it's, it was not. It was a terrible, grisly experience for the human race. But it got me quite fascinated, you know, and so I've been reading stuff about it and thinking about it, I suppose, for most of my life. And then somewhere along the road, I started thinking that it would be a good idea to try to do something with it. And at first I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it would be a play because I was writing plays at the time. But gradually I started thinking it could be a film. And then I started writing on it. And then it took years to pull all of the money together. But that one, I've been, that's been with me for a long time. Yeah. One more. Uh, have you got enough time for a few more? I am aware we're over our sure. time. Already. Sure. Oh, yeah. I have not. <laughs> I have to go chop wood. Literally, I do have to go chop wood. <laughs> now, you see, like, you're playing into the stereotype. I didn't bring it up. <laughs> uh, Christina, uh, Tina Martinson has put, uh, I have another one. Uh, uh, you're filming uh, Why the Last Man at the moment, and uh, she hears that the filming still continues. She's seen it on Twitter. So uh, have you got anything you can tell us about that? Oh, The Last Man? I can't, I'm not sure. I think I signed something. Where I'm not allowed to talk about it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. They're very secretive. I think it's Disney or FX, which I think Disney owns. 
All I can tell you is it looked amazing. The director is fantastic woman from Denmark. I just loved her. And uh, it has great actors in it, including one of the most wonderful, Diane Lane, who I had a, a couple of scenes with, who's just a great person. So I think it looks pretty good. The bits and pieces that I've seen. Uh, honestly, I think I'm not allowed to actually tell you any more than that. Okay. Well, that will do us very nicely. Shoot me. I think it's that's right. Yeah. I think I signed something that said, I can't talk about it. And if I do, then they're allowed to shoot me. I think I signed that. Yeah. I'm going to bundle a couple of questions together here. So, uh, Rowan, disease. Uh, sorry, I'm going to butcher these names. Uh, Rowan disease has asked about uh, working with Paul Haggis. But what I wanted to sort of like know a bit about was uh, what was it like kind of working with Paul Haggis in the earlier series of uh, G South and then later on you taking a more active role in producing the show? Uh, working with Paul was great. We were great. We were a great team. We were good, uh, extremely good friends. We really had share a similar sense of humor. And then also, I think he, he was as bewildered by the character that he'd written as I was. You know, so I asked him questions early on. Do I not know that these people are bad guys? Um, yes. But then why am I doing them this way? Because you think they could be better. Does that make any sense to you? No. Okay. Um, am I a virgin? I don't like because there's so little that we actually knew. And in a sense, we're kind of uncovering it as we went along. So I would go to him and say, I think he's this. And he'd go, oh, yeah, okay. And then that would start to appear in the character. Um, so it was wonderful. I mean, Paul worked his heart. He is a real uh, perfectionist. And you never, but I did learn a tremendous amount from him, which is the number one thing is don't leave a scene until you think you have it. Because there's a tremendous pressure in shooting uh, there's both time and financial. I said, you just keep, you know, you got to finish early or you got to finish on time, but it's more important that you actually get the scene right. Uh, then you make a schedule. Uh, so assuming that you're organized and you're not frittering time away, then stay on it. Make sure you have it. Uh, and then the other thing he taught me too, is also about writing fast. I was a very slow writer. I now I'm returned to being so, but then I got quick for a while. But in the television format, <clears throat> you have to write very quickly because uh, you're having to have, you have to produce so much material. Uh, and I, and I learned something. I mean, he said, no, it's important because actually then you're not filtering everything. You're not editing ideas out before you can get them out there. And the ones that you might've edited might be landed on the land on the page. And you realize actually they're good because they're more instinctive. And so that was really important, particularly when I took it over, because I was writing a lot. Uh, I did all of the final production drafts, but I also wrote quite a number of them. And uh, yeah, you just have to develop a skill where you can go. So it's a little less intellectual. It's a lot more kind of follow your instincts and more often than not, they'll be good. And once in a while, they'll be great. And occasionally they will suck, but you get to figure those out. <laughs> but you have to get to the end of the script. Otherwise, nobody knows. If you don't finish the script, the crew doesn't know what to do. They don't know how many cars we're going to need, how many other people we need in the background, what to paint, what color to paint the rooms. You know, like you have to get that done quickly. And, you know, 
general organizational. Paul wasn't particularly well organized. Because that's the other thing. You do kind of learn things from people who, where you think, well, if I ever ended up doing this, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do. So I learned some things from him. He's like, you need a good night's sleep. He just said the most erratic pattern of working of anyone I've ever known. They didn't have a clock. So he would go sort of 12 hours and sleep for five and then go for eight, sleep for 10. And Plus, I couldn't really do that because I was in all the scenes, so I had to be on the set. <laughs> but no, he was he was he was a a really important um, creative partnership that one that has had lasting kind of effects. Not much of which I could specifically point to, but I know that I feel that uh, having met him. Because it also hit for him, it comes down out of a long lineage. You know, he started out writing for Norman Lear. So he's had all of these other people that he's encountered as well. And then that that's kind of how it works, I guess, is that you take all of you, what you know, and you pass it to me, and then I give it on to others, and on down it goes until it's diluted to the point of meaninglessness. No. <laughs> uh, and I'd just like to ask about, like, the, the last episode. Like, what was it like, kind of, first of all, kind of, uh, just, just going into doing that last episode, and uh, do you have any particular me- memories? Uh, the up in the mountains, I mean, and yeah. Well, recording just recording the last episode and and saying goodbye to to that character after all those years. Yeah, it was really uh, it was it was weird. I mean, <clears throat> we shot the mountain stuff before we shot the the, the finished off shooting. So we finished off shooting in in, in Toronto. Oh, hello, pooch. This is Benton. Hello, Benton. What a beautiful dog. Where you got your name from? <laughs> um, the mountain stuff was amazing I mean it was like this great beautiful kind of crazy holiday that we all got to have on the final episode of the show and some of it was absolutely screamingly funny and some of it was quite wistful and, and melancholy and then the last day of shooting was really strange it was just a weird feeling I mean partly I suppose that sense of uh, are we doing the right thing to stop now and I felt ultimately yes, because I you know, started to run out of really great ideas. And the f- fear just retreads more than anything. Yeah. Um, but it also was really emotional for everybody because it was still basically the same group of people that we've been working with from the beginning. And so people were crying about five shots an hour, an hour and a half before we finished. It was everyone was starting to slowly fall apart. And then uh, <clears throat> I hadn't particularly planned anything to say. And George Bloomfield was the director of the last one. And he gave the most beautiful speech to at the end. And it was uh, great. The old uncle of the show just wrapped it all up for us. It was beautiful. And I, and I think we all were aware that we'd been working on something that was that we were very lucky to experience and may never repeat because they don't, there are lots of okay shows or good shows, but it's, it's rare that you have something that has that kind of spirit in the work environment. Yeah. So it was wonderful. And uh, I know there might be some issues with the music rights for it going to streaming, but uh, John Wright, uh, our friend who does the G South events has asked, 
uh, have you got any like any insider knowledge about uh, a four re a Blu-ray 4K high-res version of Blue South coming to uh, home video? I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm way away from. <laughs> I don't know. Might be, but I, I have no idea. Okay, I, I said I'd ask. He helped we me still, out this interview. I think we were we were still on 35 millimeter. Yeah, but we weren't even on a digital camera in those days. So. I think actually, I've, I think I've heard that if it's on camera, they can do more to res it up. It's something to do with the the way it's filmed. I don't know. Well, I mean, you can do transfers from celluloid to. I mean, we did all of the post and digital. It's just the actual recording of the picture was on old style film. This also gives it a, a great kind of look that there's, there's any number of different reasons why shooting in digital is better, but there is a particular kind of look to celluloid that I think is pretty hard to replicate in the same way that there's a particular sound to an actual LP than there is to an, you know, computer file. You never know. We can only hope. Uh, Sarah Hudson's asked, and this is what I was going to ask you about. Now, I know there's going to be lots of our uh, female viewers and who knows, maybe some of our male ones who would love a Valentine's message from Paul Gross. So if you'd like to just give some sort of Valentine's message out to the folks out there. And if you want to aim at a Nicola, I would score brownie points. How do you make that? There you go. That'll do it nicely. And... Uh, Max Jim Roosevelt has put, what's your favorite drink, alcoholic or non? And what's your ice hockey team if you're a fan? Probably too late, but you never know. No, you can get it. Well, I don't drink uh, now, but I, I think it was always probably just beer. I'm a, I'm a beer guy. And when I was feeling fancy, really expensive one. Those days are done. I don't have a team now. I used to have... For a long time, it was the Edmonton Oilers until they sold Gretzky to Los Angeles, of all places. Like, if they had sold Gretzky to one of the original six, like Detroit or New York, I would have still probably stuck with the Oilers. But I was so mad with them, I couldn't uh, support them. And now I don't have a team. I mean, I should have Toronto. But Toronto is – supporting the Toronto Maple Leafs is really an act of constant, lifelong futility. And I have friends who are great – Toronto Maple Leaf fans. And I did actually one year get them all. I got a miniaturized version of the Book of Job. This interminable suffering for which there is no explanation and you will never understand it. And I just gave it to all of them. You need to read this at the beginning of the season. So you'll have some reference point when you are laid low by disappointment and sorrow yet again. <laughs> No, I don't have a squad. Well, while we're on hockey, though, I mean, um, Hockey of People's History was an amazing documentary, which you narrated. I have to say, like, when you hear at the beginning of that documentary, it talks about how Canada was sort of founded around hockey. And I was thinking, oh, that's hyperbole. That's, you know, just like with any sport, they're just building it up too much. But when you break down the story, it is amazing how uh, hockey really did bring the country of Canada together as it was founding. Uh, what was it like to work on that documentary? Oh, it was wonderful. That was uh, documentaries are so much fun to do because there's all sorts of stuff you just have no idea about, and it, like it was a documentary I would that I would like to watch, you know. So, yeah, and it is 
it is an extraordinary thing about what hockey did. It, it's changing now as it's more internationalized. You know, the, half the league now have foreign players, and a lot more Americans are playing than they used to. And the system for producing hockey players in Canada is getting is going through a lot of a lot of uncertainty and change. So it's quite a bit different than when I was younger. But it is still something, you know, when the Olympics roll around, it's the one thing that will draw this whole country immediately together. Is if we're not in that gold round, we'd kill ourselves. And it's, I mean, it's not like, I don't think the UK feels that anymore if they're not going to win the World Cup. But we still think we should. Yeah, FA Cup, though. No, That's FA. Still, oh, yeah. We yeah, still get very, very... We think I mean, we're entitled to it, which is a bit weird, like... If we get if we get within a whiff of the World Cup, though, oh, it's it's ours already, and, and no matter how much we get hurt every time. Well, then we took on curling because we thought, well, we'll always win that, so we can support curling. But actually, there are now lots of countries that are curling really well. Like the Japanese are extremely good at it. Now there's all this nervousness, so we'll try to try to invent some other sport that we can dominate at with such a small population. You see, you've 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 finally cottoned on to the uh, the English way of things. We invent the sports, win at it until other other countries discover them they're much better than us, and then we have to invent more. That's how yeah. it works. <laughs> it was the Scottish who invented curling, you know, and then you guys take it off, and now we have to come up with something new. That's right. Darts. <laughs> I think you're still killing at that. I think so. I think we've got darts. Uh, there's one here, like, this is just representative of what a lot of people have said, but I think this is a lovely story. I'd just like to kind of quickly read this to you. Uh, Cynthia Stokes has put, I don't have a question. I would just like to say thank you for your role in playing Benton Fraser. I don't think anyone could have done a better job. I was young when G South was on. I was bullied very badly during that time, and I felt into a deep, fell into a deep depression. I didn't want to live anymore, which was sad for an 11-year-old to think. Teachers even encouraged the bullying and added to it, added their own to it. Due South was a saving grace. Fraser seemed like such, uh, so much like me, nice, and everyone made fun of him, but he was still him. He didn't let what people thought about him get to him or let him down for too long. To this day, I still watch my favorite episodes when I feel down. Thank you for being you. I know Fraser is a character, but I've watched other things starring you. But for personal reasons, Due South will always be my favorite TV show. Now, that's a sentiment which c comes from a lot of people I know. And I felt very similar when I um, when I watched Due South. What is it like to, just for all these years later for the show to be so celebrated? And why do you think uh, we're still kind of like uh, so in, in awe of the show today? Well, well, first of all, that's really beautiful. That's a wonderful letter. And thank you. And then I'm glad you're. Through, through that period yeah it's 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 kind of an astonishing thing you know because you don't honestly think that when you're making something your concerns are really immediate and whatever is right in front of your head or your face and so it's it's hard to imagine while you're doing it oh this will go out and it will mean something to people either or you're not really even imagining that you know i don't know how to describe it You'd think somehow that we would have a sense of what the impact of the show might be, but you don't really. And and what has really been astonishing is the enduring quality of it. I, I found that to be well. Actually, I still don't quite understand it. I mean, I do understand the heart of it, and I understand the the, 
the hopefulness at the center of it. But I'm not quite sure I understand its longevity. I was shooting a movie that was directing the war in Afghanistan. We were shooting in Jordan. And the first morning I got into the, in Aqaba, into the hotel, and I got up early and flipped on to like four channels. And one of them was running due south at 8 o'clock in the morning. In Arabic, dubbed in Arabic, which is a, kind of a trip to watch, I think. Sounded really good in Arabic. But it, it's sort of hard to, I, I still find that a little difficult to, I don't have an answer for it, really. I don't know why. I mean, I think there is some, that somehow we caught some quality of, uh, such a good quality of humanity that that it does endure. Uh, because we need that. We, we need We need to have more of that in our lives. We have too many examples of, the opposite of that. But that's about as close as I get to an explanation. I will say that I mean, not only it is an extraordinarily humbling and wonderful thing to know that you were part of something that has affected people positively and, and continues to do so. And it's, it's a very rare thing for people in my profession to encounter, I can tell you. And that's, it means a lot to all of us who are involved. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for the show and thank you for joining us today. I'd like to thank your agent, Penny, for being so wonderful in setting this up as well as to uh, John Wright from the GSAT events who put us in touch. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd just like to echo what uh, has been said there, that shows like GSAT really do help people through some very dark times. And you being here, I know, will have uh, made a difference to a lot of people. So thank you kindly. And uh, before we go, I if you wouldn't mind just wrapping this up, um, I was going to get you to record this like afterwards, but we can use this as the sign off to the show. So if you wouldn't mind just saying, uh, this is Paul Gross and you're listening to Due South by Southeast. Thank you kindly. And, and we'll go out the show. Sure. Uh, this is Paul Gross and you're listening to Due South by Southeast. Thank you kindly. And thank you kindly. from the Firesign Theater. Whenever I'm kind of wandering around the blogs trying to find something really interesting, I go to the bear and I ask the bear to show me the Dr. Squee show. It's wonderful. I was born up north of Great Slave, 1898, and I rode near all my life on a ranch near Devil's Gate. That was Ride Forever from the Due South soundtrack by Mr. Paul Gross, and before that you heard the interview with Mr. Paul Gross. From our show, Due South by Southeast, our sister show, please do check it out wherever you get your podcasts. How charming, wonderful, and fantastic is Paul Gross, though. Uh, just what a lovely man, so giving of his time. 
And uh, on the show to yourself, uh, as I said during the interview, it was kind of renowned for having a wonderful soundtrack. And uh, the two soundtrack albums they released are uh, classics, just every tune great. And this is another tune from one of the soundtrack albums. Uh, this is Possession by Sarah McLaughlin, the piano version from Victoria's Secret, one of the landmark episodes. This is Paul Gross, and you're listening to The Bear. Thank you kindly. Nobody's Girl by Michelle Wright from the second Due South soundtrack album. And we're nearly at the end of the show. I can't believe it how quickly two hours pass in your good company, dear listeners. I've had a lot of fun doing this this week. It's actually been nice to have a uh, do something a bit different, have a little bit of a theme to the show as well as uh, a fantastic interview. So in a minute, we're going to be handing over to Talking Codswallop, assuming you're listening right now on a Thursday Night Live. If not, if you listen to repeat, you're going to listen to something else afterwards. I don't know. Jeez, I can't memorize the whole of the uh, the Bear lineup, fantastic as it is. You'll listen to something good. That's all I can tell you. But next week, we have got... Uh, I can actually tell you who I'm interviewing next week. I don't always know that. But it's Bill Oberst, who is a legend of horror films. He's been in so many productions. Please do look him up for his full CV. But he's going to be talking about his new film, The Parish, as well as his previous work. So please do join us for that. And remember, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, which we've just launched, The Dr. Squee Show. As well as uh, subscribing to us on your favourite podcatcher. So thank you very much for joining us this week. Thank you to my guest, Paul Gross. And uh, like, thank you for joining me. This has been the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee. That was my show. And remember, guys, more than ever, in a world where you can be anything, please be kind. I've been Dr. Squee. That was my show. I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone or because I hate someone or because, because I want to blame someone. Not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right. Because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all. But it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end. Just be kind.
still listening on the podcast version of the Doug Squeeze Show. That was The Matt Lee's Band and Going Home. You can buy the full album Two Sides to Every Hero on your favourite streaming service or purchasing service of music of your choice. Thank you very much for listening.